I'd like to thank a brand new sponsor, Amazon Pharmacy, for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Amazon Pharmacy makes it easy to order your prescriptions and then have them delivered straight to your front door. And Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when not using their insurance. And you can get two-day free delivery. To learn more, go to Amazon.com gold. Well, both the Dow and the S&P managed to make new record highs today following the FOMC's 2 p.m. announcement and the 2.30 press conference with Jerome Powell. NASDAQ eked out a smaller gain, not a new record high. We're quite a bit of ways now for the NASDAQ, and I think that index is going to head lower as we continue to see the rotation out of the high multiple growth stocks into the lower multiple, more defensive value and dividend paying stocks, particularly those that are uh, located outside the United States because those economies, I think, are going to be stronger and their currencies are going to be stronger. So that's where the real money is going to be flowing. But I want to focus for the purpose of this podcast on what Powell said today, what he didn't say, and how the markets are reacting to both. In fact, before we got the announcement from the FOMC, and again, there was no surprises in what they did. I mean, nobody expected them to raise rates. They're not going to cut them because they're at zero. Uh, But there may have been some anticipation that the Fed would have said something about its balance sheet or the size of its asset purchase program with respect to attempting to slow down the rise in long-term interest rates. Because before we even got the news, bond yields were making new highs on the move. In fact, I said on yesterday's podcast that people who thought that yields had topped out, it was just wishful thinking. And in fact, the yield this morning on the 10-year Treasury almost got to 1.7. It got to 1.689. That's the highest we've been Uh, since COVID, on the 30-year, we almost got to two and a half. We got to two spot four, six, three. And even though we got a rally in the markets, we only got a small rally in bonds. Bonds still closed negative on the day, meaning that yields closed positive. The yield on the 30-year went out at two spot four, three, seven. And on the 10-year, one spot six, four, one. So well north now of that 1.6, where a lot of people thought that was the highs. Uh, No, we're going much, much higher than that. And the Fed didn't say anything to indicate that it was going to do anything about the rise in long-term interest rates, which again, I've likened to a game of chicken because ultimately that is exactly what the Fed is going to do. But I think despite the positive reaction that we got in the markets, and it wasn't like a rip-roaring rally that we got. We got a rally, maybe some type of relief rally, but I have a feeling that a sell-off is going to come because I don't think the Fed was dovish enough. I think they really need to hear from the Fed that long-term interest rates are capped. I mean, I think that's the hand they're holding, right? I think the Fed now is playing the cards close to the vest. They don't want to show what they're holding. They're trying to bluff. But at the end of the day, I think the markets are going to want to see the cards. I think that's the only thing that's going to save the market is the Fed coming clean 
about its commitment to yield curve control, to artificially manipulating not just the short end, which it's already doing, but the long end because of the problems that it is going to create for the economy. In fact, one of the questions, I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself a bit, but one of the questions from the Q&A had to do with whether or not the Fed was worried about the backup in yields. In fact, that question actually came from Steve Leisman over at CNBC. And the answer was, well, we would be worried about a disorderly rise in rates that was disruptive to economic growth or something like that. Well, I don't know that the rise has to be disorderly to disrupt economic growth. It could be orderly and still be disruptive. I think that when the Fed sees stronger evidence that the increase in yield is being a bigger problem for both the stock market and or the economy, then I think the Fed is going to do exactly what I said and give the market exactly what it wants to hear. And that is that the QE program is going to be expanded to accommodate massive deficit spending to keep interest rates from rising and to keep the entire house of cards built on a foundation of cheap money from collapsing. In fact, we got some data that came out before uh, we heard from the Fed today on housing. Housing starts in permits, and we had a big drop from the prior month. And in fact, the drop was well below the consensus, which was for a drop. We had 1.584 million starts in January. They thought that was going to dip slightly to 1.57. Instead, it dropped all the way down to one spot, 421. As far as permits, we had 1.886 million in January. These are annualized numbers. And that was expected to drop to one spot, 75 million. Instead, it came down to one spot, 682. So much bigger drop. Part of the reason that builders are starting fewer homes and you know requesting permits to build new homes is because the cost of building is surging based on higher raw material costs and probably higher labor costs as well. And potential home buyers are looking at higher interest rates to borrow the money to buy these more expensive homes. So what people buy is payments. That's really what it comes down to. When most Americans are shopping for a house, the only thing that matters is what is my monthly payment and can I swing it? Well, if you have to borrow more money because the house is more expensive and the cost of borrowing that money is higher because interest rates have gone up, well, then you don't have as much money to buy new homes. And so the builders are going to make fewer new homes. So if we see more economic data that shows that rising interest rates are taking a bite out of the consumer and a bite out of the economy, that may be enough Uh, to get Powell uh, to come clean, but also a bigger drop in the market. So far, we haven't had that, right? The S&P and the Dow are at record highs. It doesn't matter if some of the tech stocks are going down. The fact that the averages, the broader averages that, you know, everybody's looking at are making new highs, uh, that's probably fine. And that's providing some cover for the Fed to continue this game of chicken. But let me go right to uh, the Fed. And first of all, The initial statement, very little change, really, uh, from before as far as the Fed's commitment. But what I notice seems different is that the Fed is trying to get even more dovish. In fact, that's basically what they're doing. They always have to outdove their prior dovishness. So it's a progressive move further and further 
uh, into the dovish camp. And you'd imagine that, well, I mean, how could they get even further than they already are? They're already so far, uh, you know, they're not even on the old field of play. But yes, they always manage to outdove themselves. And, and really, you can see more of the Fed's commitment to keep the punch bowl full of alcohol indefinitely when you listen to the way Powell talks at the press conference. Because one of the things that he went out of his way to reassure everybody is that interest rate hikes are not coming anytime soon. I mean, they're years and years away. So he's saying, don't even think about it. Don't even worry about it. In fact, one of the people who asked him a question said, is it time to start thinking about, thinking about, thinking about raising interest rates? And Powell's answer was, no, it's not time to start thinking about, thinking about, thinking about it. That is far off. And every time he talked about the possibility of a rate hike, he always stopped to remind everybody that those rate hikes are in the distant future. So it's like, why even talk about something that's not going to happen for such a long period of time? You know, maybe at some point in the future, years from now, you know, we'll discuss it when we're actually closer to a hike. And this, despite the fact that the Fed has very rosy outlook for U.S. economic growth. I forget, maybe it's 6% growth for this year, and then it pulls back over the next few years, but still growth of 2 3% a year. The Fed believes that the unemployment rate is going to keep falling over the next three years. The Fed believes that inflation is going to be around 2%, right? And again, this is not actual inflation. This is the inflation as it's measured by the CPI. And, you know, when inflation by the CPI is 2%, actual inflation, at least measured by the increase in real consumer prices, the ones that people actually buy, right, it's going to be much, much higher than that when we have the official measure up to 2%. Yet, despite the fact that the Fed thinks that the economy is going to grow uninterrupted for the next few years above trend, the fact that it sees a persistent decline in the rate of unemployment and the fact that it sees inflation averaging 2%, something that it has not done based on the way we measure it uh, in, in, in quite some time, probably since prior to the 08 financial crisis, the Fed says that rates are not going to go up. They're not even going to think about raising rates. Even if all this good stuff happens, the Fed is reassuring everybody that rates are going to stay at zero. And in fact, not only did they reassure everybody that rates will stay at zero, they also reassured everybody that there will be no taper because they want to preempt a taper tantrum. And a taper is simply a reduction in the size of their asset purchase program. Now, of course, I think they're going to do the reverse of taper. I think they're going to ramp it up. They just haven't admitted that yet. But what the Fed wanted to go out of the way to say was that if they ever decide that they want to taper, right, that they want to slow down their pace of asset purchases, Powell said, we're not going to surprise anybody with the taper. We are going to give everybody an advanced warning, way in advance. So before we actually taper, we're going to make sure the market is ready for it and we're going to announce our intention to taper way in advance. And first of all, you know how that's all BS because what if the Fed actually realizes that they got something wrong, especially on inflation, that there's just too much inflation, and now all of a sudden they find out about it? They don't have time to warn the markets 
that they're going to taper and then not do it for months and months and months because by then the inflation problem that they finally recognized is going to get even bigger. But another reason that I think they they want to do this is because they want to send up an announcement of a taper as kind of like a trial balloon to see how the market would react to a taper. So if the Fed basically says, hey, you know what? We're thinking about tapering. Not now, but we're thinking about doing it at some point in the future, you know, maybe in six months, maybe in a year, whatever. So the Fed puts it out there and then it waits to see how the market reacts. And if the market is okay with it, and maybe several weeks or several months or a quarter or two goes by and the Fed is still saying it's going to taper and the markets are like okay with it, well, then maybe the Fed will do it. But if the Fed announces an intention to taper and the markets tank on that announcement, well, now the Fed sees that the trial balloon crashed, right? It was the Hindenburg, didn't really work. uh, And now they can call off the actual taper. They don't actually have to do it if the markets don't like the reaction. So that's probably why they want to give an advance warning so they can see how the markets react and then adjust the policy based on the way they react. But you can't do that. If there is a problem that you need to react to, you have to react to it in the moment. You can't react to it way into the future because you're afraid of upsetting the markets because then you have an even bigger problem, which actually gets me to another assurance that Powell repeatedly made because he was asked about inflation and about the 2% target. And Powell admitted that we would have inflation above 2% at some point this year. Mainly, he said, because the comparisons where prices were higher before the pandemic will go away, right? And then we're going to have really, really low price comparisons maybe in April and May because that's when the lockdowns really started. And so prices really sold off. And now we're going to have a few months where we compare those really depressed prices to the prices we have now. And so that's going to show a big spike in consumer prices. And what Powell is saying is, hey, all we have to do is wait a few months and let those numbers run their course, and then it's all going to go away. So what Powell is saying is that the spike that he sees coming in inflation, and he only sees it coming up to maybe 2.4%, right? So not that much further above the 2% level. He's saying that that's going to be transitory. So the Fed is not concerned about that that inflation is going to return back down to 2% or lower the following year. And according to Powell, inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. And he also went out of his way to say, look, we had inflation for all these years that was below 2%. Now we have to have some inflation a little above 2% to average the whole thing out. But he said he's not going to let inflation expectations drift much higher than 2% that the Fed would do something about it were that to happen. Of course, that is all bark and no bite. The Fed will do nothing about it. In fact, somebody asked Powell how high an inflation rate above 2% would the Fed tolerate before it did something about it. And Powell refuses to put a number on that. And he said this. He says, look, I don't want to actually quantify that with a number. I think the reason he doesn't want to is because, A, he can't because he hasn't even thought it through. But he probably doesn't want to scare the markets by saying too high a number, right? Then the dollar would get killed, gold would go up, or basically telling the truth 
uh, that there is no number, that no matter how bad inflation gets, uh, the Fed's going to do nothing about it. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Now, if he put a reasonable number out there, well, our highest is 3%. Let's say he said that. Well, if it got to 3%, then we'd have to take action. Well, he doesn't want to say that because we could easily get to 3%. And then what's going to happen when he doesn't take action? So he never wants to put a number out there when he knows that no matter what the number is, the Fed's not going to do anything because they can't do anything. So they just want to lie about it and just say, well, you know, we don't want to let it get out of hand, but we're never going to tell you up front what rate that would be. But then he he actually continued on this line by saying, look, there's no point in even discussing what we would do if inflation was above 2% because so far we haven't been able to get it there as if this has been this goal that the Fed had, right? The Fed really wanted to get inflation to 2% and it hasn't managed to achieve that goal. So what Powell said is, look, if we can ever get to 2%, if we can get to the inflation promised land, right, because that's our goal, we're making progress, we think we can achieve it, but we're not going to declare victory prematurely, right, because we may not ever get there. But assuming we get to 2% and then we actually get above 2%, we actually achieve our goal you know, even better than we thought. Like, this would be great. Like, whoa, what a great problem to have, right? Inflation above 2%. Because as far as the Fed's concerned, the big problem has been inflation below 2%. So in Powell's mind, an inflation rate that's above 2% is a great problem to have. Actually, it's a disaster because then they have to raise rates, which is something they can't do, but it's something that they haven't admitted, which is what's going to cause the real crash to come. But Powell basically said, look, We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. That's his basic answer. He says, hey, what's the point in having a contingency plan for inflation that's above 2%? We may never even get there. But if we're lucky enough to have inflation above 2%, nice problem to have, well, then we'll kind of figure out what we're going to do about it, which should scare the bejesus out of anybody, you know, that the Fed has this kind of arrogance that, oh, we'll just deal with it in the future. We're just going to wing it. We don't even have any plans. And of course, how do these geniuses, right? Because they're they're, they're forecasting inflation in 2022 and 2023. How the hell do these guys know what the inflation rate is going to be in those years? And what makes them so sure that the big price increases that we're seeing now are transitory? I mean, how do you know they're transitory? I mean, you don't know that until you transition out of them. I mean, if the guys at the Fed were such geniuses at predicting prices, well, they can make millions or billions trading the markets, right? Couldn't they trade commodities? Couldn't they get in the pits and just have hedge funds or be commodity trading advisors? I mean, these guys are such geniuses. They know that the price increases that we're about to see are just transitory. Well, then you can make a fortune shorting all these markets right into these transitory price hikes. The reality is they don't know that these increases are transitory. As far as they know, 
any big price increases that we see in 2021, they could just be the beginning of a trend that's going to go on for years and years and years. Maybe the price spikes that we see in 2021 are actually smaller than the ones we're going to get in 2022 and 2023. Maybe we are now on the road finally to inflation rates that exceed the rates of inflation that we had uh, in the 1970s. How does Powell know that that's not the case? He doesn't. He's willing to gamble that the price increases are transitory. But what if they're not? And the problem is, if you wait long enough to know that they're not, well, then you've waited too long. Because if the inflation rate gets to 3% and you're thinking, oh, it's just going to come back down, it's transitory. And then it goes to 4%. Well, okay, it's you know, not quite as transitory. It's taking a little longer than I thought to transition, but we still think it's transitory. And then it goes to 5%, then it goes to 6%. Now, what do you do? Because now you're so far behind the inflation curve. That's why these have these old sayings among central bankers, right? Don't let the inflation genie out of the bottle. Be preemptive. Don't wait until you see the whites of inflation's eyes fire before, right? Be proactive. What what Powell went out of his way to do is say, hey, this time it's different. We're not going to be proactive. We're just going to take a chance and and hope that price increases are um, transitory. And we're just going to assume that everything's going to be okay. And then if it turns out that we're wrong, well, we'll, you know, we'll deal with that problem if it arises. You know, but there is no way to deal with that problem if it arises, especially since it's going to be so much worse because of the time that they waited. And the meanwhile, you know, they keep saying that we don't have enough inflation because the only thing they're looking at is their own measures, the CPI or whatever numbers they've been using, which are not accurate. They're not looking at reality. They're not looking at what's actually happening to consumer prices. They're not looking at commodity prices. And that's even before the dollar falls. They're not looking at the stuff I talked about yesterday on the podcast, like the highest uh, inflation break-evens in the five-year bond market since 2008, despite the fact that the Fed is in the bond market manipulating and buying up those tips. They're not looking at all these investment advisors whose main concern now is that inflation is higher than expected, that consumers are now expecting higher inflation. So inflation expectations are already unanchored. They're already drifting further and further from 2%, closer and closer to 3%. The Fed is ignoring all that and instead just fixated on its own, you know, broken measure. You know, I've used this analogy before, but it's like you got a patient who comes to you and he looks really sick. You know, you put, you touch him and he, he feels really hot and he's got the shivers, right? And, you know, he really looks pretty damn sick. But then you take his temperature and it says 98.6 and you say, oh, you're, you're healthy. Go on home. But but the guy is obviously sick. He's shaking. He's sweating. He, you know, he's he's in pain and he's clearly has all these symptoms of an illness. But, you know, you take his temperature and the, the reading is is normal. Well, what the doctor has to concede is that, you know, maybe there's something wrong with my thermometer because it really looks like there's something wrong with this guy. So I'm not going to rely on a thermometer, this thing is probably broken. You know, I'm gonna trust my eyes and say, okay, this guy is sick and he needs some type of medication, right? 
the Fed is going to be looking at an economy that is experiencing obvious signs of inflation. Yet the Fed is going to ignore all those obvious signs of inflation because it's going to be focused on its broken thermometer in the CPI. And it's keep going to say, oh, it's only 2.1, 2.2, no big deal. We're barely above two. Meanwhile, think about how high prices were actually rising when the Fed was telling us that the CPI was 1% or 1.5%. We had pretty decent increases uh, when the level was down there. So if we go from 1.5% to 2.5%, that's a lot more probably than a 1% increase. I mean, we could be at 10% or more by the time the CPI reads 2%. That's how busted this thermometer is. In fact, they broke it by design. They specifically designed the CPI to underreport inflation, and that's exactly what it's doing. Amazon Pharmacy makes it easy to order prescriptions and then have them delivered right to your house. The process is simple and saves you time and hassle. No more waiting in line at the pharmacy. Instead, just have your doctor's office send your next prescription straight to Amazon Pharmacy, and then you'll receive it delivered right to your front door. And Amazon Pharmacy works nationwide with most insurance plans. We've been Amazon Prime customers for years. And in fact, we use it more than ever now that we live in Puerto Rico because Amazon Prime gets free shipping to Puerto Rico. Almost everything else we buy online takes forever to get here. But Amazon always gets here right away. You know, the last thing I want to do when I'm sick is go wait in line in a pharmacy especially if the pharmacy is filled with other people who are also sick and maybe I'll catch something else. It's much better to know that when you're sick, you can have your prescription filled without ever having to leave your house. And that's the best part about Amazon Pharmacy is you can get the drugs you need fast without ever having to leave your house. And as an added benefit, Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when you're not using insurance. And you can get free two-day delivery. You can learn more by going to Amazon.com slash gold. That's Amazon, A-M-A-Z-O-N dot com slash gold. You know, another thing that Powell and his cronies over at the Fed ignore are the bubbles, the financial bubbles that have been inflated by the Fed. And Powell was asked, if he was worried about his easy policy where he is basically assuring the markets, you got nothing to worry about. I'm going to keep interest rates at zero. We're not going to taper without long, long advance notice. So we've got the monetary pedal to the metal. So go out and buy risk assets, load up on uh, high price stocks, go out and borrow a bunch of money, buy assets. We got your back, right? Basically, that's what Powell is saying. And so this reporter says, hey, aren't you worried that this type of commitment, this type of policy, a commitment to stay this low for this long and this easy, are you worried that this might inflate an asset bubble? And of course, you know, talk about a question that has to do with closing the barn door after the horses have left. The time to worry about asset bubbles was years ago. The bubbles are already there. But the amazing thing was Powell's answer. This is what Powell said. He said, well, I'm not concerned at all. And the reason I'm not concerned is because we had 0% interest rates for almost the entire recovery from 2008, 2009, up until the COVID recession, right? We had this 10-year recovery, longest in U.S. history. He said interest rates were almost zero the entire time. 
And when we finally raised them, they never got any higher than two and a half percent. So we had really low interest rates, almost zero the whole time. He said we did QE one, two, and three. The balance sheet went up to three and a half trillion. We had all this easy money, yet we had no bubbles. So since we didn't blow any bubbles, we didn't have any uh, malinvestments or distortions or misallocations of resources, there were no negative consequences to the cheap monetary policies that followed the bursting of the housing bubble. Well, then there'll be none now. So think about how many mistakes Powell is making in that answer, because he's saying that the reason we're not worried about our cheap money policies blowing bubbles in the future is because they've never blown them in the past when that's exactly what they did. First of all, how does Powell think we got the housing bubble? How does he think we got the dot-com bubble? I guess he has no clue. But again, he didn't talk about the bubbles that existed before 2008. He specifically qualified his answer by saying the Fed has not inflated any bubbles or no bubbles have been formed because he wouldn't admit that the Fed is at fault. But he said we haven't had any bubbles at all in anything since 2008. So why should we have some in the future? Now, first of all, just because monetary policies didn't produce bubbles in the past doesn't mean they won't produce them in the future, especially when they're far more reckless now than they were in the past. The Fed is printing much more money now than it did following the 2008 financial crisis and Great Recession. So this is a lot more money printing. This is a much deeper commitment to keep rates even lower, even longer. So just because we didn't get bubbles in the past doesn't mean we're not going to get them in the future, except we did get them in the past. We are living in those bubbles. You see, even if the bubble hasn't popped, it's still a bubble. See, that's the problem. Pal just doesn't understand that the biggest bubble ever has been inflated. In fact, we're living in the everything bubble. You name it, it's in a bubble. The only thing that's not in a bubble is gold and silver. Everything else is, from stocks to bonds to real estate to cryptocurrencies. I mean, you name it, it's in a bubble. The Fed has got so many bubbles, they're blind. They got so many bubbles in their eyes, they can't see the ones that are staring them in the face. And of course, this makes sense because Powell himself has repeated the same lie that Greenspan said when he was Fed chairman. Powell said that nobody can tell there's a bubble until after it pops. That's what he said. Now, of course, that is a lie because it's easy to tell a bubble before it pops. What's hard is to know exactly when it's going to pop. That's what's very difficult. It's easy to know that there's a bubble. It's just very hard to predict when it's going to pop. But identifying the bubble and knowing that it will eventually pop, that's easy. I mean, that's so easy, only a central banker can't figure it out. So we do have a big bubble. That's why Powell's answer was wrong. The monetary policies that we pursued following the 2008 financial crisis inflated a massive bubble. It's just that Powell doesn't know it exists because it hasn't popped yet. And the reason it hasn't popped yet is they keep pumping it up with air, which is what they're doing now. We have the biggest bubble ever. And now it's going to get even bigger, and eventually it is going to pop. Now, maybe the Fed thinks that this bubble is too big to pop because of the damage that it's going to do. So they're going to do whatever they can to prevent that. But then they pop the biggest bubble of all, and that is the bubble in the U.S. dollar. And that's the one that's going to pop, right? When they show their cards and they go back to bigger QE to continue to prevent uh, the house of cards from collapsing and to keep interest rates artificially low, the air is going to come out of the dollar bubble and then it's game over for the Fed. But the other thing I wish somebody would have asked Jerome Powell 
Uh, Mr. Powell, you once said that nobody can tell a bubble until after it pops. If that's the case, Mr. Powell, how do you know that what we're experiencing right now in the stock market, in the real estate market, in the bond market, how do you know those aren't bubbles? Because you said yourself, nobody knows until after they pop. Well, doesn't that include you? So isn't it possible that there's bubbles right now and you just don't know that they're there because they haven't popped yet, right? How is he going to answer that? The fact of the matter is, even if a Fed chairman can know there's a bubble, which should be obvious, especially since they're the ones blowing them, but no Fed chairman will ever admit that there's a bubble. It's just never going to happen. Because once you admit that there's a bubble, that means it may pop even sooner, which is good economically. I mean, the sooner a bubble pops, the better, because the damage is done as the bubble is inflating. You don't start correcting the problems until the bubble pops. So the sooner the bubble pops, the smaller the problems and the less painful it is to correct them. But all the Fed wants to do is postpone the pain of correcting the problems. And so the problems get bigger and bigger. And so the inevitable pain is that much more agonizing because of all of the Fed's actions to kick the can down the road. But I thought really the most amazing thing about the whole day, I mean, listening to the press conference and watching the market react in real time was listening to the commentary from the so-called experts because nobody seems to be concerned. Nobody is worried about this. Nobody is worried that the Fed is too easy. Nobody is worried that we're going to have too much inflation. In fact, the only concerns I saw expressed had to do with what if we don't get the 2% inflation that the Fed is promising. I mean, they said, well, maybe, you know, that's the concern that the Fed is going to fail to achieve the goal of higher inflation. That is the only goal that they're going to achieve. Nothing else. They're going to destroy the economy with inflation. They're going to far exceed their goal. If they want inflation above 2%, if they think that's a good problem to have, they're going to have it in spades. But the problem should be there for everybody to see that the Fed is in this box. The reason the Fed is doing unprecedented things right now, the reason it is charting a course that no prior Fed has navigated is because of the gravity of the situation that we are now in thanks to all of the past Fed mistakes having built on each other. And so now we've reached a problem that can't be solved with traditional methods. But of course, the traditional methods never solved the problem. They just delayed the consequences. But now the problem is so large that even those traditional measures won't work. So now we just got to throw caution to the wind. We have to go all in on money printing, endless 0% interest rates, QE infinity, and just continue to press the envelope until the whole thing collapses. And nobody can see this. No one is concerned. They're talking about this strong economic growth as if it's genuine. They're ignoring all the deficits. They're ignoring all of the money printing. They're ignoring the ultimate effect that all of this is going to have on the dollar, on the bond market, on the economy. You know, the scary thing is the Federal Reserve has so much power right, and influence over the U.S. economy and the financial markets. Yet the men and women who yield that power are completely clueless about basic economics. I can get that. I understand that. Just hearing Powell trying to explain the things that are going on in the economy right now with employment, inflation, and growth. This guy, if I taught Econ 101, this guy would get an F. 
He doesn't understand anything, yet he has more power over the economy than any one individual, yet he's completely clueless. And this is a very toxic combination, and it can only end in one way, and that's a complete collapse. It's going to be a economic and financial disaster. And my main mission, apart from warning people about that disaster, is making sure that they're prepared. Forewarned is forearmed. But I can't arm you. You have to arm yourself. I can help you. That's what I want to do. But you've got to make the first move. You've got to get your portfolio into shape. You can do it yourself or you can do it with my help. And if you think you're protected because you've got some Bitcoin, that's probably not going to work. I mean, it's a long shot. I mean, maybe it'll go up, but maybe it's going to come crashing down. You need protection that you can count on. You need to get into real money, which is gold and silver, and you need to have the bulk of your assets in good quality value and dividend-paying stocks outside the United States in select countries that are going to be in far better economic shape that are in better shape now, that don't have the type of macroeconomic imbalances that the United States has, creditor nations with higher savings rates, trade surpluses, balanced budgets, uh, fiscally responsible uh, central banks that will be able to raise interest rates as inflation rears its ugly head, not the Fed that's trapped at zero, that's going to be monetizing U.S. government debt until the money they're printing collapses. You got to do this stuff in advance. And again, the window of opportunity with which to do that is closing. How long before it's shut completely? I have no idea. But what you want to make sure is that you are positioned properly before that window closes for good. Meanwhile, looking at how some of the other markets reacted to the Fed press conference, gold and silver markets rallied. Gold ended up about 14 bucks on the day, around $1,745. Silver rallied about 40 cents. I think it closed around 26.30. Uh, those are not big moves, but the metals were down earlier in the day. And so they did finish uh, on a positive note. So I think we've probably seen the lows in both gold and silver, and I think we're headed higher. The opposite with the dollar, we did have a break in the dollar index today. Dollar index dropped 45 basis points down to 91.41. I think that brief rally in the dollar is probably over. My guess would be the dollar is gonna sell back down and make new lows. The one thing I don't think is over is the rise in interest rates. My guess is that bond yields are gonna continue to rise until the Fed makes a concerted effort to put a stop to the increase. And initially, that will obviously be a positive for bonds because the Fed is going to then be a big buyer. The Fed is going to step up to the plate and buy all the bonds that everybody wants to sell. Of course, once the Fed makes that commitment, then everybody is going to want to sell bonds. In fact, even if you didn't want to sell them before the announcement, you're definitely going to want to sell them after the announcement because A, you're going to have a big buyer willing to take them off your hands but when you own U.S. Treasuries, especially longer-term Treasuries, and the Fed has now made an open-ended commitment to print as much money as necessary to buy as many bonds as they have to to keep rates from rising, the last thing you want to do is own those bonds because you know the Fed is going to destroy the dollar when it's buying those bonds. And that's all you own. When you own a U.S. Treasury, what you own are dollars. You own dollars for future delivery. 
the government's going to pay you dollars in 10 years or they're going to pay you dollars in 30 years. And in the meantime, they're going to pay you interest in dollars and basically a very, very small number of dollars, right? Because rates are so low. So if the federal government or the Federal Reserve is going to destroy the value of those dollars in order to prevent those bonds from going down in price and higher in yield, then you want to sell. So the minute the Fed commits to artificially capping rates, then it's all in. And then it's a rush for the exit. Everybody is going to dump on the Fed. But it's not just going to be people who own treasuries who are going to be selling. It's going to be anybody who owns any bond denominated in dollars, which means the Fed is going to have to expand its asset purchase program to municipal bonds, to corporate bonds, to everything that it doesn't want the yields to blow out. Because wherever the Fed is absent from the market, that's where you're going to see a true interest rate. And if the Fed has to create massive inflation to keep interest rates artificially low for the government, then interest rates have to be artificially high for everybody else. Well, if the Fed wants to prevent that from happening, then the Fed has to buy all those bonds too. In for a penny, in for a pound. Or in this case, an infinite number of dollars. And that is where the specter of hyperinflation rears its head. Not just high inflation, but hyperinflation. That's when this is really going to get real. Meanwhile, Bitcoin also rose today. In fact, Bitcoin was down on the day. It looked like it was going to go make new lows. It was down below uh, 5,400 again. And then as soon as the Fed announcement came out and everything started to rally, uh, stocks, gold, well, Bitcoin went along for the ride and got back above 58,000. As I am recording the podcast, that's where it's trading, about 58,300. Have no idea where it's going to be when anybody listens to this. But I have a feeling that somebody is going to sell into this rally. In fact, Bank of America came out today and they released a report where they basically stated the obvious. They said what I've been saying uh, since the beginning. They said they really couldn't see the investment case for Bitcoin. They wrote that the main portfolio argument for holding Bitcoin is not diversification, stable returns, or inflation protection, but rather sheer price appreciation. Yep, that's it. They basically said we studied Bitcoin and we can find there's only one reason that anybody would buy it, and that's to gamble that the price goes up. They don't think it adds any real value to a portfolio. It doesn't give you diversification. It doesn't give you any more stable returns, and it's not an inflation hedge. I've said that many, many times since Bitcoin's price is not related to any other price. It's not a commodity like gold or silver, and it's not correlated or doesn't have a historic relationship to all the other commodities, it can't possibly be an inflation hedge. Because while people will need gold in the future and while they'll need silver in the future, they're never going to need Bitcoin. They may want Bitcoin if they want to gamble on it, but if people don't want to gamble on it, then nobody needs it. There will always be a need for gold and silver. They'll always have a real price related to other commodities and so there'll always be a hedge against inflation. But of course, the media, at least the Bitcoin media, tried to overlook this Bank of America report. What they focused on more was Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley finally came out and I guess they said, hey, we're going to allow our customers to invest in crypto, right? Not directly. They're going to invest in it through, I think, two or three uh, publicly traded vehicles that they're now going to give approval for on their platform where they're going to allow people in their Morgan Stanley accounts 
to buy these. In the past, they weren't even allowing access. So the crypto community thinks, oh, see, Morgan Stanley is on board. They're blessing this, right? This shows that it's a good asset. Look, first of all, Morgan Stanley, they don't give a damn. I mean, they have some clients that have interest in this. So they want to make some commission because they realize if they don't buy these assets at Morgan Stanley, well, they'll just pull their money out and they'll buy them someplace else. So Morgan Stanley wants to keep the assets in-house and so they're doing this. And they may even have another invested interest. Maybe some of these crypto vehicles that they're allowing people to buy, uh, maybe they have an interest in there. In fact, two of the three crypto funds that Morgan Stanley is going to allow its clients to buy are run by Galaxy Digital Holdings. That's Mike Novogratz's company. And that stock was up 28% on the news. New all-time record high today. Obviously, that's good news for Galaxy Digital, if they're going to have more assets under management, thanks to this Morgan Stanley announcement. But, you know, the fact that Morgan Stanley is going to allow some of his clients to get into uh, crypto, I bet that Morgan Stanley had a lot of clients in subprime mortgages as well, not on the short side, but on the long side. So just keep that in mind before you follow any of their advice. And, you know, I think it's very interesting, too, that you have more and more of these, uh, you know, ETF type vehicles in Canada. You've got a couple of ways that you can play a Bitcoin and you have more firms now trying to get ETFs in the U.S. And they keep focusing on how the reason that people want these ETFs and other publicly traded vehicles is they don't want the hassle of having to deal with actual Bitcoin. But I remember early on, the reason that Bitcoin was supposed to be so good was because there was less hassle involved in buying Bitcoin than buying traditional stocks and bonds. But now people don't want to buy the actual Bitcoin because they say it's too much hassle. They want to buy a traditional stock. They want to buy an ETF that's full of Bitcoin instead of actually hassling to buy the Bitcoin itself when the whole selling point of Bitcoin was that it removed the hassle. So again, another contradiction, another promise that Bitcoin failed to live up to, yet the bubble continues uh, to expand. But the point I wanted to make about Morgan Stanley is how they qualified who they're going to allow to buy Bitcoin, right? Number one, you have to be a high net worth individual. You have to have at least $2 million in your Morgan Stanley account in assets before you can buy any crypto. You got to have $2 million. And if you're a fund, right, if you're a professional investor operating a fund, you have to have at least $5 million. So that's number one high minimums. Number two, they will only allow you to buy any crypto asset. These and, and it's only this limited selection, but you must have had your account open with Morgan Stanley for at least six months. So you can't become a new customer and then right away invest in crypto. You have to have already had the account open for six months. They have to know you a little bit before they're willing to take a chance on allowing you to buy a crypto related asset. That's number two. Number three is the maximum you can put in is two and a half percent of your portfolio. So if you have a $2 million account at Morgan Stanley, the most they'll allow you to allocate to these crypto assets is $50,000. That's it. 50,000 out of 2 million. Now, why is Morgan Stanley restricting access to crypto to such high net worth individuals and then only allowing them to allocate a very small percentage of their portfolio into these assets. Because number one, they regard crypto as extremely risky. That's why they want to limit 
a client's exposure because they realize that they could lose everything. But the real reason that they want to do it and the reason that they'll only allow multimillionaires, accredited investors with at least $2 million on deposit at Morgan Stanley, which means they probably have a lot more money elsewhere if they've got at least $2 million in their Morgan Stanley account. The reason is because they know that the larger accounts, if they lose money, they are a lot less likely to sue Morgan Stanley to recover their losses. And if they do sue, they're a lot less likely to prevail, right? Because they're more sophisticated investors. And, and so they, you know, they could understand the risks. And, you know, they only lost two and a half percent of their portfolio. So they gambled with a very small percent of their portfolio. Well, they gambled and lost, you know, take the lumps, right? And and so wealthier investors, higher net worth investors, you know, they're more likely to accept the losses because they're used to speculating. And again, they're far less likely to sue, especially since they're far less likely to prevail. On the other hand, if Morgan Stanley were to allow smaller investors to invest in crypto, and then those smaller investors got wiped out, they probably would get sued and they probably would lose. So what Morgan Stanley wants to do is limit its legal liability. It doesn't want average investors to go anywhere near crypto because they're afraid that once they lose money, they're going to sue Morgan Stanley. And they're going to be saying, how could you let me do this? You were a fiduciary, even if they weren't. And you should have stopped me. You should have told me how ridiculous this was, how crazy this was. You know, you let me lose all this money. You guys are professionals. And, and now I'm suing you. And in fact, they know that the cost of defense for a small account, right? If somebody, if some small investor drops $10,000, $20,000 on Bitcoin and then files a lawsuit, Morgan Stanley's just going to write the check because they can't afford to mount the offense because they'll spend more in legal bills defending the action that it would cost them to just pay the, the claimant to go away. So in advance, in order to mitigate all these problems, they have all these restrictions. So from my perspective, if you actually look at what Morgan Stanley is doing, this is not pro-Bitcoin. This is not a validation of Bitcoin. This is basically a validation of what I'm saying. Bitcoin is a highly risky asset. People who are investing in it are probably going to lose all their money. Therefore, if you want to risk losing all your money, then you have to be a wealthy investor and you can only gamble with a very small percentage of your portfolio.